Welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, where we celebrate the craft of poetry. Each week, we feature interviews with incredible poets and artists, including Olivia Gatwood and A.E. Stallings, and original poetry read by the authors. I'm your host, James Moorhead, poet laureate of Dublin, California, and author of Canvas and Portraits of Red and Gray. Sandy Longhorn has received the Porter Fund Literary Prize for Arkansas Authors and the Collins Prize from the Birmingham Poetry Review. She is the author of three books of poetry, The Alchemy of My Mortal Form, The Girlhood Book of Prairie Myths, and Blood Almanac. Her poems have appeared in Hayden's Fairy Review, North American Review, Oxford American, and elsewhere. Longhorn studied poetry at the College of St. Benedict, St. Joseph, Minnesota, and the University of Arkansas, Fayetteville. She now teaches in the Arkansas Writers MFA program at the University of Central Arkansas in Conway, Arkansas. Sandy, welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast. Thank you so much for the invitation and for taking the time to have read my work. Oh, I, I, I ate it up. <laughs> and then we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. But it was a sit down, read it, and couldn't put it down. Um, so before talking about your poetry and your extraordinary book, The Alchemy of My Mortal Form, what forms of fiction most excite you? And I ask that because this is such a different, and we'll get to that, such a different book of poetry versus a collection of poetry. So what fiction excites you? What types of fiction? Um, I have to confess that I have not read a lot of fiction, uh, literary fiction, in the past 10 years or so because teaching all poetry all the time, I'm constantly trying to stay up to date with what's happening in uh, the poetry world, and I am I'm not a quick reader, so it's probably one of the reasons <clears throat> poetry became my genre. Um, is that I'm a slow writer and I'm a slow reader mm -hmm. and I can, I can slow write a poem and feel a sense of accomplishment in weeks or months instead of the years it would take me perhaps to write, uh, in longer form of prose. Uh, I do, um, it may be no surprise then that I do enjoy flash fiction a lot. Um, but that may be cut be because, it relies on some of those poetic elements mm -hmm. um, more than, or in a more condensed way than longer fiction. Um, that is not to say that I don't enjoy genre fiction. Um, I love a good cozy mystery and I read a series by a woman named Cleo Coyle for that. It's set in a coffee shop in New York City. And I also very strangely love spy thrillers. Interesting. Yes. Well, both mystery and, and thrill, there are, and that's why I asked this question, because there are definitely elements of that that come in, and we'll come, we'll come back to that. Well, from the very first section of The Alchemy of My Mortal Form, titled General Orders, and the introduction of the three characters in that short uh, preface, a white coat, a nurse, and a mystic, it's clear that this will not be a typical collection of poetry, but a narrative. Strangeness is established from the very first page. What was the earliest inspiration for this book? Uh, the very earliest inspiration is the first poem after that section, which I'll read later. 
but fevers of a minor fire. Um, and this book is very different from my previous books in this, the fact that I wrote these poems in chronological order. Mm -hmm. Once you start with um, that fevers of a minor fire um, through the end of the speaker's story. So the glossary at the end and the general orders at the beginning um, were sort of separate, but the narrative I wrote in chronological order. And so I'm going to tell you two things about the inspiration that only people who hear me in an interview or hear me read this book know. The speaker's journey is inspired by one of my cats at the time. Oh, really? (laughs) Awesome. Who who was diagnosed with a fever of unknown origin. And the book is also largely... um, a reaction to my father's diagnosis of Parkinson's Mm. in his 60s and the amount of work my mother had to do to get him care. Mm -hmm. So those are the two, uh, there's the, the medical threads that are going through this book are coming from sort of the fact that I could get better medical care for my cat very quickly and very easily and very cheaply than my mother could get for my father. Fascinating. Yeah, that would that uh, those underlying threads I would have never teased out, but I knew there had to be some combination of things. Uh, that's that's fascinating. Well, you you mentioned that this is a narrative and that you wrote it in order, except for the the preface and mm-hmm. the afterward. The uh, and it's intended to be read in order. Um, but the poems have appeared individually in journals, which I think is fascinating. How did you have to, or did you adapt the poems to be effective as standalone pieces without the context set by the book, and then also work in the context of the narrative? Did you have to tweak them a little bit either way to make them to make them work? Yeah, um, I don't remember that being a major concern, and I think there are a couple of things working in my favor. Um, while they, there is a mystical element to the poems, they are largely narrative mm-hmm. with a clear speaker who is a character moving through space and time in the poems. Um, and so they can stand alone to some extent. And the other thing is um, about a third of the book is epistolary. So in those letter poems, <coughs> excuse me, In those letter poems, I think those have an easier chance of standing alone as well uh, because the reader can engage with them as they are without having to know the rest of the story around them. Yeah, no, I I could see that they they individually weren't totally reliant on where you are in time, and yet they perfectly sequence together. So that's quite a balancing act. It was unusual. (laughs) It was unusual for me, yes. So I've read your book several times preparing for this interview, and the first time I read it straight through, as I mentioned, in one sitting, I couldn't put it down. The unsettling eeriness was so compelling. In this vigil I keep for comfort, you write, in the background, the machines whir and bleat while the white coats squander their smooth voices, ordering higher doses, another sting of the needle's tongue. I bow down to gold-leafed grief. How did you think about pacing this narrative, both crafting the poetry and creating the momentum of a cohesive tale? <laughs> I, 
don't know if you've experienced this because I don't know if you write fiction or not, but my fiction friends were always saying things to me uh, like, well, the character just took over and I had to keep writing to find out what was going to happen next. Mm -hmm. And I was always very jealous of this. Um, And my previous two books are, they're not quote unquote project books with an overarching narrative. They're both more mixtape books where the poems were written at various different times and then put together into those lyric arcs. So I was always very jealous of my friends who were, who were writing even prose nonfiction where there was a clear narrative arc or um, then reading books of poetry that had clear narratives. And it wasn't something that had ever happened for me. And I have to say that after I wrote that first poem, Fevers of a Minor Fire, I, I wrote this book um, in 11 months, which is very, very fast for a slow writer. Mm-hmm. My, my previous two books each took um, four years for the first one and six years for the second one to write. Um, so this was a phenomenon for me. And what happened was I wrote that first poem and I was writing over the summer because I am an academic. And um, when I'm teaching, I do not have highly productive generative writing time. So I do a lot of my generative writing in the summer or over the Christmas winter break. Um, and so it was it was June or, or July And I started writing these poems and I wrote this first poem. And the next day when I came back for my writing time, the speaker came back. Mm -hmm. The speaker had more to tell me about that mystery that was launched in that first poem. Um, I should say that I was also reading um, Emily Dickinson's Master Letters at the time uh, because Lucy Brock Broido's collection, The Master Letters, is one of my touchstone books. It is um, a book I return to probably every two years and read front to back and discover new new moments in poetry that that I had missed in the readings before. Um, And so the master letters, you know, we don't know who Dickinson was writing to, but they're addressed, dear master. And I was thinking, you know, for my speaker, she also has this sort of mentor that she's addressing in these letters, but why would it have to be a man? Right, and that's right. how it became, became dear madam was in direct conversation with um, uh, both Dickinson and then Lucy Brock Broido's work in that area. Wonderful. Well, that leads right into my next question is the narrator through letters and what could be a journal of diary entries has a distinct voice, perhaps Victorian, Uh, Margaret Atwood once said in an interview that you need to know what is in the nightstand table drawer, even if you never open that drawer in the, in the narrative, how did you develop a reference backstory for the narrator and their voice? And now I've got a little bit of color from that very unusual coupling, but did you have that nightstand drawer that you never opened, but you knew it was in there. And I think JK Rowling also had this incredibly rich, backstory for everything and J, uh, you know J.R. Mm-hmm. Tolkien like they just create these incredible worlds and then they pull a story out of that world that they write down did, did you have that backstory was that important that the setting and the the backstory of the characters lived experience 
developed in the writing of the first four or five poems, and then it coalesced. Um, so another influence that won't surprise you is The Yellow Wallpaper by mm -hmm. Charlotte Perkins Gilman. At the time, I was teaching um, five, five, so five sections each semester at a community college in North Little Rock, Arkansas. And my load was mostly composition, but I would also get to teach world literature. And I always assigned the yellow wallpaper. So at this point, I had been teaching the yellow wallpaper every semester for five years or six years. And um, she, the, you know, the, the narrator of that story is so multidimensional and layered and um, is often taught as an unreliable narrator, but I don't think she is at all unreliable. I think that that is a red herring um, that we have perpetuated in <laughs> academia. And so she would certainly be uh, it, a sense of that, um, the rest cure and a sense of that um, lack of agency was going on. And so once I got that, and once I figured out that that the narrator was institutionalized mm -hmm. in, the, in the books. The idea of that institution, you know, it, it's very unusual because my first two books, I, I was considered a place-based poet. I, I was a poet writing about the Midwest, um, even though living in Arkansas, but um, th those poems are steeped in landscape. And as I was writing these poems, it dawned on me that there is no landscape in these poems other than... Um, illusions that the speaker might make to something exterior to the walls in which she lives. Um, and it really drew my attention to how important those details were going to be then um, when I could work them in and how important it was to make the setting of the institution its own landscape. And so I don't know if I've answered your question. No, directly. I think you did. I mean, you've thought about... Um... It's not just the, the what you wrote in the poems, but that how they fit into this world that you don't that you don't directly get into all the details about that you did think about yes. that setting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, which is different than um, although I did in my second book, I wrote a twenty five ish twenty six page long poem capturing a trip I took to the Soviet Union when I was a teenager, pre Perestroika, wow. a long time ago, back mm -hmm. in the eighties, and uh, and then I even though it wasn't fictionalized, I had to think of how I I threaded this storyline that was chrono chronological so it made sense and had highs and lows and ups and downs and there were all kinds of details that I just couldn't fit you know but they had happened so I had to think of which details do I pull out of that ether so I was definitely reading it I thought there was definitely a lot more detail that could have been in there that was edited yes. down yeah yes. uh, so after reading your book I thought of Tyler Mills City Scattered I spoke to Tyler last year for the podcast and was struck by how that book also a narrative would be compelling to be performed live in a theatrical setting in writing the poems for your book how did theater love of theater and performance in potentially influence your writing yeah so clearly the idea of dramatic monologue comes through because we have the speaker who's isolated and alone and um whether it's through letters or through what seem like diary entries, this is giving voice to the eye, right? Um, so you could see this sort of as a, a, a one woman show or something like that, you know, or I mean, yeah. I hadn't thought about that direct correlation, 
coming into play on it, theater. But I will tell you that another big influence is um, Marianne Salmon's work and her idea of the colloquial Baroque. So here I am in my first two books writing in this very plain speech, Midwestern language. I, I embrace image and I embrace landscape, but there is, there's very little um, over-the-top language mm -hmm. in the first two books. And yet my first instinct when writing all the way back when I was a baby poet was to flourish, to use flourish on the page, you know, the, the textual equivalent of jazz hands. And my teachers were always striking through those purple prose places. And then I started reading people like Lucy Brock Broido or Marianne Salmon and Lisa Russpar is another one. I don't know why they're all three named people, but they are. Um, and they were able to create these lush poems full of language that was just bursting with ripeness um, and not have it be purple prose, mm -hmm. have it be effective in that way. And so here, um, when, I, when I got this speaker who was speaking to me from a fever and who would be fevered through most of the book, it was like a green light to explore that new voice, that voice that I would never have had. So in a way, right, that is very much the theatrical, the, the persona, the putting on of the mask of someone very different from myself. And I loved every minute of it when I could, um, when I could use fever as the impulse to fl flourish on the right. page, you know? <laughs> um, and so in, in some ways, I still feel like this may be cheating a little bit, you know, in using what could be over the border purpley prose, but that I think remains authentic to the speaker's um, voice in this situation. Well, that's a perfect lead into my next question, which is, you know, one of the reasons I was unable to put down your book was the mystery and strangeness phrases such as, the woman I called mother by mistake takes pity, sends me gifts addressed by an anonymous hand. And... This bed, my penitentiary, though my chains pointless, cotton woven. And one more. She requests a bit of fingernail, a drop of newly concocted blood sap dried on cloth. Love that last one. Uh, yet you never uh, jump the shark, so to speak, poetically. Um, the strangeness never crossed over into the absurd or the overly flourished. Um, how did you make that balance to dig into that a little bit deeper between the compelling narrative and the and macabre and, and doing the revision and editing process, how did you get feedback where you, maybe you did go too far because you got so into the freedom of being able to flourish through this narrator that you would normally step back from and, and be no, no, okay, I've gone a little bit too far. I'm almost about to jump the shark poetically. I think in some ways this, this harkens back to your previous question about that world building and then knowing what you have to leave out. Mm -hmm. And so it was through striking through um, places where I had gone overboard and drawing it back to the woman I called mother by mistake instead of the three stanza explanation of that that, you know, originally occurred in the first poem where I mentioned her in taking that out because it was overly done and it was... Um, 
hyperbole to the point of um, distraction kind of thing, then you find the mystery when you pull that back and you just let that statement of who that character is be what it is. And I, I would, think. and I don't even want to know. Actually, the things you cut there, I don't want to know because it was so. In particular, that reference was so mysterious and added something by less. Like less made it so much more. Yeah, that's a great example. And just to to know what happened with that character there of the woman, the speaker is called Mother by Mistake. This is the woman who raised her, um, and this woman is separate from the mentor, and so what happened is it set up this dichotomy of why is the speaker alone? Why is there no support while she is going through this medical mystery um, that is life-threatening? And, you know, how are those two figures working in her life um, at this time? And so then as I wrote more poems, because I had those questions, I was trying to answer them as I went forward, right? And um, because I was operating in this alternate voice, I was able to leave the mysterious in there. Um, my instinct, being a very plain-spoken Midwesterner, is you explain yourself, right? right? <laughs> you make yourself clear. We are about departing information. Um, and um, instead, here was my chance to to let the language exist in the questions instead of in the answers. Terrific. Well, there are several forms you've employed, poems in the form of letters, poems that snake the page visually, poems with stanzas and lines of two, three, four, and five. Throughout the book, there is a strong sense of symmetry in stanza length that is almost always consistent throughout a given poem. This visual symmetry added something to your book, a sense of precision from the narrator that matches their mm -hmm. language. Even though there's a lot of mystery, I think there's mystery that is expressed with tremendous precision. How did you think about form as a tool for driving the narrative? And that did, symmetry, was that a conscious choice or just something that happened naturally? I think that's something that happens naturally in my work. I'm a, um, I, I love to explore form on the page and, um, even when I do break the traditional left aligned margin and I'm exploring white space and, and using indentation um, and a lot of stanza breaks, if you, if you look at what I've done carefully, you'll see there's even um, a mirroring in that as well. And I think that's just a personal taste thing. Um, I, I do not tend to write the single stanza poem um, in part because of my own desire to have space to breathe and to pause in poems. And I need the white space to process what's happening in the poem. So whenever I start drafting a poem, I start by longhand in a notebook until I get what I call a critical mass of lines and it's holding together. And I know that this is going to transfer to, um, to the digital page. And when I do that transfer, I really start to establish the form of the poem, knowing then what the content of the poem is going to be. Um, to me, these, these poems that are couplets and tercets in the book, 
and then the poems that explore the white space very much married the content of the speaker's mind as she's fevered, as she's struggling to process this reality that she um, feels confused by. And she's sort of breathless anyway. So there's a lot of breath in the page. And that's maybe more what I was thinking of mm-hmm. than um, a consistency across the book. Gotcha. Yeah. So given that this book has been out out there for a couple of years, a few years, <laughs> uh, what is the what are some of the unusual, unexpected responses you've gotten? Given the book has so much mystery that I think people can take in different ways. I wrote a, this made me think of a poem I wrote um, a couple of years ago where I was inspired by a bell buoy and it was tethered out in the San Francisco Bay. And I thought, what's it like to be that bell buoy? And I wrote a, you know, sort of a very image rich thing about being tethered. And then, you know, one, uh, one person I work with who turned it into an animated film, she based in Italy, she thought of her of being tethered by COVID at the time and trapped in her apartment in Milan. And then another friend of mine up in Canada thought of her 90 plus year old parents that are tethered to their home, but see the world passing by and recognize every squirrel and person that walks by. So she had a totally different take on it. And my original inspiration was a bell buoy and what would it be like? Given that you can, people can pour into any good poem into so many experiences, what are some of the unexpected responses to this book that you've gotten? I think the responses that that startle me the most are when someone comes up to me and announces um, what disease the speaker has, mm. what specific disease the speaker has, and then wants to quibble with some description of treatment that I allude to in the book. So as you know, since you've read the book, there is nothing stated about the, what the disease is. And there are only sort of slight references to needles or machines like you referenced earlier. Um, nothing is spelled out as being an XYZ treatment. Um, so that startles me when someone comes up and says, so the speaker has leukemia. So why are they getting this, you know? Um, uh, and then I kind of take a step back because uh, true confession, I don't know what disease the speaker has. That wasn't part, one of the questions I had when I was writing the, the narrative because one of the points is how the medic, what I call the medical industrial complex um, disembodies a patient and makes them a problem to be solved. And so that wasn't my focus, solving that, that problem. My focus was how does a person navigate this experience and remain whole mentally as well as physically by the end? And, and do they? That's, as you said, why you couldn't put it down. My hope was you would be reading to discover, does she? You know, does she come out healthy on the other side? Or, um, you know, as I say in readings, you know, you have to read it to find out if she lives or dies. So, um, yeah, so that startles me. And then the other thing that startles me is when someone comes up and announces what time period the book takes place in. Because I don't know the answer to that question either. There are definitely Victorian references in here. And then there are definitely 20th century, you know, latter half of the 20th century technologies that are referenced in there. Um, And to me, that's all part of the mystery. And that's part of the question of what does 
having this fever of unknown origin and being treated in a particular way by the medical establishment, what does that do to a person's narrative? What does that do to the way the person sees the world? So, so I'm going to ask one more question before I hand the mic over to you. Um, what advice do you have for poets or your students thinking of starting a narrative, a book written as poetry? Uh, Safia Hillo has done these wonderful has done a wonderful book that is uses poetic form, but it is it is a story start to finish, and talked to her about that. Um, versus a book constructed from a collection of poetry. What did you learn in through this experience? So you mentioned one thing, you know, you were able to, to, to take on a different voice and unleash some, you know, things that you wouldn't do in the poetry that you've done before. What, what did you learn about making it work? Um, so one, I would say, start with a, obviously a character with a strong voice, um, a strong voice in language, you know, um, instead of just a shocking event that has happened to this, to this character, but what kind of language, what kind of diction, what kind of, of words would this particular speaker be using in this situation and let that voice drive you forward. The other thing that was very different for this book, because you mentioned the highs and the lows and, and the sort of the, traditional narrative arc and how do we navigate that. So I found myself with this book more than anything else I've worked on rereading the poems while I was drafting the new poems. Um, and that is pretty uh, atypical of how I work um, when I'm not in a narrative. So I was always reading to figure out what, what other questions did I have. I did not know how this book would end. I did not know where this, I didn't even know how many poems there would be. I just kept showing up and she kept having things to say to me, or I kept having questions, the sort of, well, what if, what if, um, and of course, you know, this was paralleling things that were happening <clears throat> with my father's health and, and what my mother was experiencing as his caregiver and that was leading me to, to more concrete questions about the speaker's existence um, in there. So I think having questions about your narrative is a good thing, um, rather than that feeling that pressure of, oh, I'm going to tell a story and it's going to go A, B, C. Mm -hmm. right? But being able to question what's happening between the points or even what the conflicts will be as the poems develop, you know? Wonderful. That was a great, um, great piece of advice. And I'm in the process of finishing a manuscript that isn't a narrative, but it does have a thematic sense to it. It's more than a collection. And I'm reworking some of the poems now to make that tighter. And that's that's a great way to think about it. Um, so now I'm going to turn the mic over to you to read selections from The Alchemy of My Mortal Form. This poem is the first poem I wrote for the book and the poem that came to me in the speaker's voice and set up the exploration that would, would, would uh, craft the entire narrative arc for the speaker. Fevers of a Minor Fire, August, near the first. Dear Madam, I address you with a tongue calloused and lumbering Imagine the skein of my hair humble and falling, neck ravaged. Based on your favored advice, 
I have passed some days burning the locked boxes my suitors sent me. The firelight refracted by my fever flush, sweat on my brow and collarbone. There is a feral oath in my throat. Dear lady, I confess it. I have pilfered many ounces of blood from my heart and placed them in the vial. In the fire, the garnet fluid boils, holy and unholy, still. I have no prayers, but my bruised veins pulse beneath slack skin, pale and thin muscle cover. Madam, will you answer only this? The voice that steals along these walls and calls me to the flame. Is it you speaking? It is a sweet and viscous sound, like the port I sip each night to bring me sleeping. I await your reply. Do not be hurried. There is tinder enough to keep the fire and plenty of red meat to replenish the heart. Your subservient. In the book, the cast of characters is our speaker who has this fever of unknown origin. Uh, there is her mentor who she writes the letters to, Dear Madam. And in the hospital, there are the white coats, which are the doctors. There are the nurses, and then there are the mystics. And the mystics are all of the people who work in hospitals who are neither doctors nor nurses. So everything from nutrition, who brings lunch, to janitorial, who comes to clean up the spills, um, to the security guards at the doors. Those are all called mystics in this narrative. The alchemy of my mortal form. I have hoarded my scars, kept accurate account of rashes, wounds, and spells of amnesia. The records state I am salt deficient and subject to a febrile habit. Each night, my lips split and peel. Today, I am sin and ash, this muslin gown, electric, white, a garment more apt for entry into paradise. If confession be one part of the prescription, I do confess, I have transgressed. I left the woman I called mother, the task of broom and dishrag. I made of my soul a harbor for ill will when asked, to forgive. I beg you, my white coat, draw the curtain. The nurses may serve as our chorus of disregard. Their backs turned, their hands tending patients more likely to recover. Hurry, there is a panther in the undertow of this fever. Its claws are laced with radium, its jaw to racks of knives, thirsty for muscle and arterial blood. Do not trust the pulse. I wait for you to save me, to wield the burning scythe. And that introduces the woman I called mother by mistake that you referenced. Tongueless, I conjure her at will. August. Dear Madam, the woman I called mother by mistake brought me here when the sickness made me shiver even in a scalding bath. The water lapped the edges, 
spilled in a cataract to the clean tiled floor. It soaked the towels there. She dried me with rough care and bore the weight of me to get my body here. There is nothing in this room that smells of her, though I request chrysanthemums. Let my fingers trail through their thick heads. I bring the musk to my mouth, breathing in such a way I might drown on the scent. I do not begrudge her leaving. I saw her eyes when my lips formed the word. We both knew I was orphaned then. You're a refugee. Wonderful. The first poem, if you set aside the, the general orders, Fevers of a Minor Fire, is, is perfectly sets the stage. And what a, any first poem in a, a poetry collection or a poetry narrative is critically important. And there's usually a lot of agonizing for a non-narrative where, well, which one do I put first? And then the ordering becomes this whole, you know, stressful enterprise. In this case, the order, you, you, you needed to write the more because it was a narrative. But getting that first poem right really hard. So what did you go through revising and editing the poem? Did you change the that poem once you had gotten to the end? Like you said, you sort of discovered the narrative as you went through. So did you, not just that poem, but other poems, did you end up realizing, ooh, okay, I did this thing earlier. Maybe I got to change it a little bit because of where I ended up deciding to go. Yeah, that happened. That certainly did happen with, with the next few poems. This poem remained almost untouched. Um, I think the voice was so strong in it. Um, and it was one of those rare poems where even after I had drafted it, it didn't change a lot in revision. Um, it was more that I had to, I had to change to be able to transcribe this voice. I had to say, oh, it's okay that I use these lines, that I use these words that are sort of over that they're, they're extravagant. So things like, there is a feral oath in my throat. Okay, that's already a lot. And then it goes on to say, dear lady, I confess it, which is definitely a place where I see her sort of fevered language coming through. Mm -hmm. And my instinct was to change that. Um, and then I left it there and let that voice guide me through the rest. But certainly in the rest of the book, there was a lot of, like I said, I was reading the previous poems as I was drafting the next ones to try to keep the narrative um, consistent. Uh, um, you know, those those people who help in filming of TV shows and movie, the consistency editors who are making sure everybody still got the right shirt on in the right scene when they're refilming. Um, so I was thinking a lot about that. And then um, having to think of new ways to describe hospital settings and bodily fluids and things like that. I, I would have to, I looked a lot for repetition that wasn't working as repetition. And I had to make a lot of changes in that as the thing came together as a whole. Wonderful. Well, finally, what are you working on now? You mentioned that your things take a while uh, for you to develop and write, and it, it's definitely complicated by having a full-time job. That's very intense. I can relate to that. Uh, but what are you working on now that you're excited about? Um, now I am working on, um, my next pro I, I had a project after this because this has been out for a while. Um, it hasn't been as successful in finding a home. So I'm, I'm also moving on to something new. Uh, I've written since after this book, I started writing a lot about my own mental health, um, diagnoses. 
uh, and trying to explore the lived experience of somebody coming through those lenses. Um, and for whatever reason, I have not been as successful in placing those poems. So that's just part of the process. But I am shifting my focus. I have now lived in Arkansas for longer than I lived in Northeast Iowa, which is where the place is for the first two books. And yet I have not written many place-based poems around where I'm living now. And so that is kind of what I'm exploring along with, um, I've experienced a couple of major life changes recently that I'm not quite ready to talk about, but I am processing those life changes by trying to become deeply rooted in a place I am rooted in and trying to see those life changes through the landscape I'm living in. Cool. It was a very roundabout way of, of answering your question. <laughs> well, so, I, I look forward to the, to yeah. when those materialize, uh, which I know everything to do with publishing and books. And even if you're a fast writer, it doesn't matter. The, the whole publishing is extremely slow, patience-inducing process, getting poems. Play. And I think that's good for people to hear that even if you're, you've published multiple books, it doesn't mean like some magic wand, every poem you send out is going to get placed. It just doesn't work that way. Plus doesn't work that way, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. Well, it was, first of all, everyone listening to this, buy The Alchemy of My Mortal Form. I, you will not put it down. And it is definitely something I'm going to reread. And, I'll, and, I'm, and I've already read out loud the first couple poems of my wife and, and said, you've got to read this. It's fantastic. <laughs> so thanks so much for sharing your poetry and your voice on the Viola Swings Poetry Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a wonderful conversation. Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast is written and produced by James Moorhead. You can follow me on Twitter at Dublin Ranch, subscribe to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, and follow us on viewlesswings.com or on Instagram at viewlesswings.com.